What I'd like to talk about tonight are what are called the hindrances in practice. And we actually planned that I would talk about this tonight, three days ago when we planned this retreat. And we made up who would talk on what nights. And uh, since I was going to be speaking on the third evening, I said, well, it's the third evening. It's the right time to do the hindrances. And uh, today, as we uh, did interviews and began to, I began to talk to people about their practice, I thought, yeah, that was the right decision to talk about the hindrances today. Because the first day, everything is all new and exciting, and there isn't very much to that day. And yesterday is kind of getting into the routine, and predictably, lots of people sleepy. And then things settle down. And then on the third day, predictably, people notice patterns to the difficult periods of their day, patterns of struggle that come up. So it's always the right day to talk about hindrance energies. Just as a reassurance that that doesn't mean the practice isn't working right or that you're doing it wrong. It means that things are actually proceeding exactly on schedule and going exactly as they should. So that was one reason why I was glad to be talking about it. I listened to somebody, and this is really a composite of a number of people in an interview this morning say, when I said, well, are you having any difficulties? Do you have any questions? I said, no, no I don't really have a question, except I struggle a lot because I keep having a thought like, what good is this all going to do? And it seems so simple, and could this possibly work? And then I get bored. And then after a while I get bored, I wish I had something good to do. And then I get irritable with this whole process. And then I get nervous that I'm not meditating right. So that's five hindrances right there. So that I thought to myself, well, I guess I could talk about all five. I'm happy to talk about the hindrances because they are those predictable um, energies of mind that seem to fill the mind and uh, impede clear seeing when the balance of mind is challenged in any way. And we are all challenging balance of mind. Balance of mind is always challenged anyway. The notion that we get the mind in a nicely balanced place and it stays there forever and ever, at least it does not operate that way for me. I think that the way it is for human beings is that sometimes, if we're lucky, we manage to see clearly and enjoy some period of balanced, awakened mind. That's what mindfulness is about. That's what clarity is about. And then predictably, there are things that challenge that. Sometimes they're um, external events. Sometimes they're just physiological events, like we get tired or uh, hungry or... Um, um, ill or something that challenges balance of mind. And then what happens predictably is that the mind uh, fills with an energy of attempting to deal with that challenge. And the energy itself then seems so real that we begin to identify with it and believe it. We get what's called caught in it, and then we don't see clearly. It's important to talk about that because if it weren't for those hindrance energies, which are entirely natural, it's not something that we're doing wrong, if we could imagine um, the mind in its natural state, the natural state of the mind really is spacious and reflective of 
those very wonderful divine abodes that Sharon talked about the first night, the mind in its natural state radiates friendliness and generosity and compassion, kindness, good spirit at other people's good fortune, rests in equanimity. So maybe when I say that, you say, really? It doesn't seem like that. If that's the natural mind, why is it so elusive to us? Why do we feel it so rarely? The magic of this practice, actually, is that it allows us to reconnect with that natural mind. And that the, the, the technique of this practice, the technique of saying with steadfast intention, those intentions, those resolves, works on two levels, along two wavelengths or two vectors, to help us to reconnect with our natural mind. One of the ways is by making those intentions and trying to connect with that feeling. It's as if we put out a, a, a homing vibe to find that, that vibe in ourselves that we really suspect is already there try to connect with that place in some immediate way. The other way that it works, and that's the way that I'll talk about a lot today, is this is actually samadhi practice. We are saying those phrases with steadfastness in order to cultivate a more concentrated mind. The more concentrated mind has as its components those very mind factors that are themselves the antidotes to the hindrances. So if you can imagine a mind that's naturally clear and radiant and reflective of all those wonderful tendencies, and then for whatever reason obscured by those hindrance energies, what we are doing is we are cultivating the, the, those antidotes to those hindrance energies that naturally dispel them, and then the mind radiates in clarity, just returns to its natural self. I had a thought the other day, and I thought, I don't know if I can say this in a Dharma talk. It seems a little too ordinary, but I was watching television, and they uh, had a commercial for uh, um, an antacid, and uh, Mylanta or something rather, but it had a flask of cloudy colored liquid, and someone poured Mylanta in it. And it got all clear, and you could see right through the flask. And they said, this is the absolute immediate antidote for heartburn. So I thought to myself, well, this is the absolute immediate antidote for heartburn. Magically dissolves it. So if that's not too plain, uh, if it is, I've already done it anyway, so it doesn't matter. But and I wanted to say, as I thought about it, I thought that's the magic of this practice. And then I said, well, it's actually not magic. It's actually quite um, scientific. If you understand the Buddhist formulation for the way the mind works, it makes absolute sense. But for me, there's a kind of magic about the way that it makes sense. It's kind of beautiful to see how the mind works. And stunning in its simplicity of how easy it is really, if you understand, to reconnect what's with what's actually our natural self. And I was thinking as I was planning to say that, that some people might say, it doesn't seem like the natural mind is that all friendly. Look around in the world, 
world is in a very difficult place. Lots of terrible things are happening in the world. If that's the natural state of the heart or the mind, how come it doesn't look better out there? And if that's the natural state of my heart and mind, how come I don't feel it more, especially as I'd like to so much? And that's somewhat mysterious, but I just think that we have so many eons of conditioning this lifetime and who knows what other ones that have just made us some very uncomfortable mind habits. And what I like to think of practice as is the opportunity to come here for a while and cultivate a new habit. So this is the habit of seeing clearly through those hindrance states. I thought a little bit about when we look at people whose minds do look like they rest in that kind of clarity. Joseph talked a little bit about Deepa Ma last night, had such an amazing clarity. Where people talk about the Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa, Albert Schweitzer, people who seem to just rest naturally in radiating goodwill. And we think, well, those, those are special people. But I think actually when the mind is clear, we're all special people. Um, I was getting dressed in, a, in the gym where I work out not so long ago, and a woman getting dressed near me, um, much younger than I, maybe 30 years younger than I, and we were talking about uh, how good it is to exercise and how good you feel afterwards. And she said, also, it's so good for you. She said, after all, I had the major surgery a month ago, and here I am back exercising again. And I said, major surgery? You look great. What kind of surgery did you have? And she said, oh, my sister is a diabetic, and she needed a kidney, so I gave her one of mine. And it was just such a matter-of-fact kind of a statement, like she needed a bicycle and I had two in my garage. Or it, was, it was just not a big deal. And I thought about it later and I thought, well, it's her sister. But I think when, when we see clearly, we really get it that everyone is. I uh, saw a television clip the other day, perhaps you saw it too, of a train that derailed in Southern California. And uh, was carrying some hazardous chemicals, and so there was a big fire on it. And uh, they were the camera people were interviewing some people who lived right where the train wreck had happened. Uh, a man who told about himself and his brother, who having seen the train derail and see it burst into flames, realized that there were people in it, and ran down and rescued the engineer who was alive, but dazed and unable to get out of his compartment. And uh, when they interviewed him, he said, well, I just looked down and the train was on fire and I figured there had to be people in it, so I went. And he didn't say, I thought it over, or I thought, wondered about that the train might explode, or it already was exploding, or I thought I'd be a hero. My sense of those experiences is that there are moments when perhaps because of the calamity of the moment, the mind is so clear that there's no hesitation. We don't really have to remember or, or think through, this is me in that train, or I should go down and be generous and help this person. Our natural goodwill takes over. We are not separate from those people.
I thought I'd tell you a Deepa Ma story just to start with because uh, Joseph had told about her last night and it reminded me and I told him the story and he said, tell that story. When Deepa Ma came to this country uh, the first time, her students brought her and uh, they brought her first to California and uh, she stayed there for a couple of weeks and that was long enough for all the California students to come and see her. I had a, I, it was a, it's a wonderful memory for me. I think about it as like a Dharma teacher on tour that we bring from city to city and people come to see her. Anyway, she came to my home and uh, at that time I had an enormous Akita, a dog, and those of you who know Akitas know that they're very large. Mine was a male, so they're especially large. And he was really mild-mannered, but he was impressive-looking. He was very big. He was certainly more than 120 pounds, and he had a huge head, and they have a head that looks like a bear. And um, he was impressive enough so that when people came up to the door, they would normally hesitate before coming in. Even if I were with them, they would stop at the door and I would have to say, this is all right, don't worry about the dog, he'll be fine, come on in. Dibama was a very little woman, very little woman, uh, smaller than I, much smaller than I, and uh, absolutely, as far as I could tell, so um, so full of love that she was free of fear. She came up the steps with the people who brought her, she came up to my door, she looked in, the dog was there, she sailed right in, no hesitation. The dog stood up to meet her, to imagine. They were about the same size. She was a little taller, the dog was definitely heavier. They were more or less on a level with each other. She walked right up to him and put her hands on his head <laughs> and blessed him. And he was fine. He sat down. I, I knew he'd be fine. I didn't know that she'd be fine. She was fine. I was very impressed. <laughs> the other Deepama story that I remember from that trip, I, I don't know if Joseph knows this, is that we went to San Francisco one day to have lunch with various Sangha people there. And I was driving back in my car, and I was driving Deepama. I was driving. She was sitting next to me. And her interpreter was in the back seat. And, and those of you who know San Francisco know it's quite a hilly city. And uh, there's a certain point coming along Divisadero Street where um, coming north on Divisadero where you suddenly go over the crest of a hill. And if you're a newcomer to San Francisco, the hill down looks quite precipitous. And it aims down at the bay. And the street down to the west of us is likewise precipitous. And it's one of those tourist places that you like to say to somebody just as you crest the hill, look around, and people are usually impressed. So as we're coming to the top of the hill, I tell the interpreter, please tell Deepama that this is a very important tourist place. So he told her. And she looked. And it just wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> <laughs> went over the top and went down, didn't seem to impress her very much. 
Normally people are flurried. Uh-oh, she was fine. I, I, I thought about a lot in the years afterwards. I, I think that one of her outstanding Hallmark characteristics was calm. You know, and that's not necessary. Necessarily, I think the outstanding characteristic of every supremely wise person. People have different ones that are their predominant characteristic, but she had a tremendous amount of calm. It was very impressive to me. Calm is the antidote for agitation and fear. And the absence of fear allows for love to radiate quite naturally. So it all makes sense to me that she had such tremendous lovingness and such a lack of fearfulness and such tremendous calm. They all link together in that wonderful way. So I tell you all of those stories because I want to tell you that I think that what we are working on this week is entirely natural. One of the things that often happens to me when I'm sitting, it's just a doubt attack, actually, but it masquerades, and what happens is on a certain occasion I'll look around and I'll think to myself, what an odd thing we're all doing. This is really odd. It might have occurred to one of you today that this is an odd way to spend a holiday. Yeah. Especially you look out, you say the snow is great, I could be skiing. I'm sitting here and walking and sitting and walking. I'm saying these phrases to myself all day long. What could this possibly mean? Shouldn't have done it. That's really just a doubt attack. So I tell you that very much anticipating the doubt attacks, that what we are doing here is really reconnecting with the natural state of the mind. And sort of the, the Dharma talks in general are uh, really to condition that kind of faith, which is, in a way, an antidote to doubt. So I want to talk about the five characteristic hindrances. One of them is doubt. Five characteristic dif difficult energies that fill the mind from time to time and confuse it, make it difficult for the natural radiance of the mind to manifest and which confuse us into thinking that they are solid and permanent and real and need to be a problem. And the truth is they don't need to be a problem. They're not a problem. They're just the vagaries of a mind. It isn't as if, if we were very wise people, they would never arise. I think they always arise. What happens is that we get wiser and wiser about seeing through them. See, this is a doubt attack. This is a lust attack. This is an aversion attack. This is a torpor attack. This is a restlessness attack. They're just five. <laughs> of course, you could have them all together, and then it would be a m multiple hindrance attack. But the truth of that is that every hindrance is a multiple hindrance. Too close to five. Is it reverberating? Now can you hear? <laughs> Back to square one. <laughs> That's okay. Okay, thank you. Sharon likes for me to tell the tires story. So uh, 
I was, I was just thinking about which, what, how to introduce the hindrances. The hindrances are five different va valences of energies, ways in which the mind... <laughs> Huh? <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> People characteristically react in all the five different ways. Each of us has known moments of lust and moments of aversion and periods of torpor and periods of restlessness and periods of doubt. We each of us also have one or another of those wavelengths that seems to be karmically or genetically or culturally or sociologically, who knows why, our hindrance of choice. And one, I'll tell you a story that might help you tune in to begin with on what might be your particular strong one. This is a story that happened sometime this year. Someone came to Spirit Rock and told the story. They said, I uh, went out to uh, the other morning to get in my car to go to work, and I tried to put my key in the ignition. The car was parked right near the curb, and I tried to put my key in the, in the, in the door, and I noticed as I was putting my key in the door that the uh, keyhole was lower than usual, and then I noticed that all the four tires were gone. <laughs> and that someone had come in the night and taken the tires. He said, so? I locked the door back. I walked two blocks to the nearest shopping center. I bought a pair of silk pajamas and a silk robe. And then I went home and I felt better and I called the police and I made the report. And the second person said, you did that? I would never do that. Say, I would have gone in immediately and found the superintendent of the building and I would have given them a piece of my mind about not minding the street and not being in charge of well, at least setting somebody out there to watch it. And then I would have gone to work and I would have been on everybody else's case and given everybody a bad day because after all I've already had a bad day so it's right for me to give everybody else a bad day. And third person said, oh I would have never have done that. He said I would have gone right back into my apartment and called my work and said, listen I'm exhausted, I've had a terrible day. <laughs> It's already been a big strain. I couldn't possibly come to work. I have to recuperate the whole day. I'll come tomorrow. Fourth person said, I would have never done that. Said, I would have thought, today the tires, tomorrow the car. The next day may be me. This is a very dangerous neighborhood. Maybe I should move? Fifth person said, I wouldn't have done any of those. I would have thought, once again, I have made a stupid choice. I've moved to a bad neighborhood. I can never trust myself to figure out where the right place is to live. So there are five different ways in which the mind 
responds to challenge. One is it says, I need to soothe myself with a sensual pleasure. Another says, I am so mad. Another says, I'm exhausted. Another says, I'm so worried about this goodness, you never know. And the fifth kind of energy says, I'm not sure, I doubt, doubt myself, doubt it all. And those are just the five different ways. Do you recognize yourself in any of those? Um, and I just like to tell them that way because I really feel very fond of hindrances. People struggle with them so much because they think of them as moral flaws, that somehow if we were a better person, our mind wouldn't do that. My hindrance, principal hindrance all of my life, from which I'm substantially recuperated. I'd like to tell you that as a result of my mindfulness practice, I'm substantially recuperated. Marika. But nevertheless, nevertheless, uh, you might think I think of myself as a recovered fretter or a recovering fretter. That restlessness is definitely my principal hindrance, that given a perfectly normal state of affairs, I could imagine something really fretful. I'll tell you one in a minute, because it happened to me just the other day. My husband said, be sure to tell that story. There you go again. And for a long time, I thought if I had enough therapy, I would figure out the etiology of my fretful mind. And having figured it out, it would never arise again. But that's not true. I, even I could give a lot of good reasons for figuring out why I have in this lifetime a fretful mind. Because neither of my parents actually had it. But I could, I could figure out why and who knows, but I don't know why. But all I know is that I do. And rather than struggle with it or hate it or blame myself for it or try to get rid of it, all I need to know is no, that's just the way it is. Given a perfectly neutral state of circumstances, I can, in a moment, manufacture a worry about it. And so my job is to notice that that happened and then to check it out before I spend any more energy on it or get involved in it. And so I'm quite happy to tell people because it relieves them of feeling that they have to fix themselves up that I have a fretful mind and brown eyes and I'm short. That's just the way it is. And when people can say about themselves, you know, my principal hindrance is torpor, so I work around it. Or my principal hindrance is aversion, I work around it. And that's fine. Because that means we can stop fighting with what is and be really wise and skillful with it. I'll tell you a little bit about the five different valences of hindrance. Because each, uh, each of those hindrances has a kind of energy associated with it. You can feel it. The energy of lust, sensual desire, has a kind of a needy energy about it. Like, I need something to make me feel better. Silk pajamas, hot chocolate. Um, it's amazing how in a, uh, in a retreat where there are so few things to need, we could spend a lot of time thinking about, I wonder what's for lunch, 
hope they don't have tofu again, so much tofu here. That the minds could spend a lot of the morning fantasizing about what would be a good lunch. And then three minutes after lunch starts to think about what's for tea. Mind leaps forward to the tea. It's not, it's not a naughtiness of mind, it's a way that a mind reacts to challenge or unbalance when it, its particular uh, tendency is a lustful one. People don't like to say a lot that their principal hindrance is lust because it's a word that's in a little bit of disfavor in the world. It has a kind of a moral tone about it. When I say to a group, who here has a principal hindrance of lust, nobody likes to raise their head. <laughs> It's amazing to me because nobody minds raising their hand about principal hindrance of anger. And, you know, I, I think that's a, that's, you know, I would be much more hesitant to let on about that. Uh, lust is kind of interesting when you think about that. But it just means that tendency of the mind to be reaching out for something. And really when it's important to to conceptualize it as a pulling energy of the mind. It's a mind that needs something because it will make sense when we talk about the antidotes, why the antidote to lust is one-pointedness of mind. It's a mind that's filled with lust. It's kind of scanning around the horizon. What looks good? That looks good. I'll have some of that. Or I'll have some of that. Friend of mine who's a Dharma teacher who says that his principal hindrance is lust, says, I never met an experience I didn't like. <laughs> it's just the kind of mind that likes things. There's a new thing, I'll do that. It's another new thing, I'll try it out. You know, it's just, it's, it's, I, I, I'd like to be saying this without a value judgment. It's kind of the mind looking around. I'll try this, I'll try this, I'll try this. Sometimes in practice, especially in uh, doing um, metta practice, where there's a certain amount of kind of playing in the mind for what phrases can I say that most suit my temperament and what cadence can I say that and what vision can I hold that will make me most interested. And there's a certain way in which a certain amount of playing and looking around is really skillful means. It's really wonderful to find the exact words that engage the heart. And it's really wonderful to find the exact technique for keeping the practice alive moment to moment. We talked about it in one of the groups this morning, that some people visually see the phrases arising in the mind, more or less like on a teleprompter or on a flashing light. Other people hear the phrases in the mind as if, they're being broadcast or as if they're saying them to themselves. And other people neither see visually or hear auditorily, but have the sense of the phrases. And everybody is right.
for everybody, there'll be a particular way for in which the practice stays lively. There isn't a right way. There's a right way for people, many right ways for people. So I really want to encourage you to not feel bound by what you hear by a particular instruction and try keeping close to the instruction to find the way that it's lively for you. And at the same time, I want you to keep in mind uh, the possibility of the lustful mind continually trying new things. No, it's not interesting anymore, try a new one. No, not interesting, now try new. So at the same time, I want to say, feel relaxed about skillful means. I also want to say, look for that tendency of the mind to say, I'll do it another way, I'll do it another way, I'll do it another way. Which might be the mind just getting tired of that and looking for a new experience and a new experience and a new experience. So there's a way in which I'd like to balance the instruction about find a way that really suits you to say it by also saying, on the other hand, just say it. Just do it. Um, plain. Over and over and over again. Because the truth is that we don't have to do it in an extraordinary way. If you do it in this practice in the plainest way, just saying the phrases, without tremendous feeling, without tremendous vision, without tremendous sense of connection, if you just do it with steadfastness, it will work as a samadhi practice. The mind itself will take care of the rest. Rapture will arise. Connected feelings will arise. One-pointedness will arise. You will feel it, and you won't need to manufacture the feeling. The feeling will arise on its own. It will reveal itself because it is the fabric of the heart. I'm tremendously interested in the word revelation. I love that word. It's a tremendous word in, in spiritual practice. And we normally think of a revelation as a new idea. I would like to think of the heart revealing itself in its truest sense. So I'd like to really leave this discussion of lust with that, um, with that kind of uh, caveat to make the practice alive for you, but to watch the tendency of the lustful mind to be looking for so many new experiences that the mind can't settle. And settle. And try. The second of the energies is the energy of aversion. And uh, kinesthetically, energetically, uh, it's the uh, negative of the energy of lust, which is looking for something to pull in. The energy of aversion is a pushing away energy. Generally, it's, it's kind of a mm in the mind, pushing things away. Sometimes we think of the energy of anger, but aversion, just not wanting. I can't be happy unless I fix things, get rid of this. I can't settle into things as they are. Sometimes people even have an aversion to metta which is a sort of a, sounds like it would be an oxymoron, but especially when people are dealing with something that's a troublesome thing for them. Distress comes up in the heart. Aversion comes up. We think of somebody that 
we're having some trouble with in our lives and then we think, I can't do metta for that person, I really don't like them. Then we feel badly about ourselves, what kind of a person am I, I can't even do metta, here I am on a metta retreat. Then we feel annoyed with ourselves, and then we feel annoyed with the retreat. When Sharon was saying yesterday about uh, having, hearing the instruction from Upandita, think about uh, the one good thing that a person ever did. And she thought to herself, I'm not going to do that. That's the thing that stupid people do. That's an aversive reaction. I'm not going to do that. It doesn't appeal to me, I won't do it. Uh, and for whatever reason, aversive feelings come up. There isn't a need to struggle about that. I think there's a way that aversive feelings, first of all, aversive feelings come up just when things aren't comfortable. The mind gets unhappy and wishes we were. That's just the way it is. You know, it would be very unnatural to have our body start to be uncomfortable and not wish that it wouldn't go away. Or a knee starts to hurt and we wish that it didn't. And our back is tired and we wish that the bell would ring and that the hour would be over. That's just a normal reaction of the mind to say, I'm not comfortable, so I wish I were. I wish this experience were over with. There's a way to not get really excited or tied up in it or frightened by the presence of unpleasant feelings. Here I am, I'm so annoyed at being here and I'm here on a metta retreat and I shouldn't have come and I'll never do metta again and it was a bad choice. There's a way of taking that and making it into a very big story. And there's a way of saying, I'm having an attack of grumpiness. I'm just not happy. So probably it'll pass. Because it will. The way it will pass ultimately is not by sending metta to the grumpiness. Or It's, in my experience, too confusing to do that. It's just, if it is possible, to continue steadfastly with saying the phrases. As we continue steadfastly to say the phrases, the mind fills, becomes more concentrated. As it becomes more concentrated, it begins to fill with the natural antidotes. So now I'll tell you two of those natural antidotes because they're the two natural antidotes that go with the two hindrances that we've just talked about. One of the characteristics of a concentrated mind is a one-pointedness, a focus. Concentrated mind can really stay concentrated. When we are, in fact, steadfastly saying the phrases without embroidering them or changing them or visualizing complicated visualizations, just saying the phrases, Mind becomes concentrated and is, in fact, one-pointed. That one-pointedness is the antidote to the lustful mind that's many-pointed, looking around for some new thing. It just isn't possible to do both. When the mind is one-pointed, it is not greedy. Greedy is many-pointed. One-pointed is the dissolver of greed. When the mind is concentrated, it begins to have a heightened awareness of rapture. Rapture is really a heightened 
sense of the body and it presents itself in different ways as people sit and practice. Sometimes people feel just their hair stands on end in their body or they shake a little bit or they get a sense of shivers or they suddenly feel very light or they suddenly feel very warm or they suddenly feel just tremendously expansive or every once in a while you'd be sitting and the whole body disappears or suddenly the heart pounds in a strong way or suddenly feel vibrations in different energy centers of the body and lots of different ways that rapture arises sometimes it's very subtle it's just a very sweet feeling of contentment pleasure pervades the body and the mind it is the natural antidote to grumpiness he cannot be grumpy when the body and mind are suffused with pleasure. It just doesn't fit together. It doesn't go together. So you don't have to worry about how shall I get rid of this grumpiness and how can I avoid having that grumpy thought. Don't have to think about that. You can just think about steadfastly saying the phrases. It's like a magic all-purpose kit, antidote to all forms of heartburn. And just say the phrases and built into the concentrated mind that builds as you say the phrases are all the antidotes to all the hindrances. The next two hindrances have to do with energy levels in the mind. And energy levels in the mind change just like energy levels in the body change. And we don't really feel worried when energy levels in the body change within some reasonable expected realm, when we get tired, we say, I'm tired, so I'll just rest for a while. We get very energetic, we say, wow, really energetic, I'll get up and do something. It's not a problem. It's not a problem when those kinds of energies happen in the mind either. It's just, again, the dips and the waves of energy in the mind. But sometimes we worry about them, especially when we're on retreat. Because low energy in the mind presents itself as sleepiness or torpor. It comes out in a peculiar way on retreat too, because uh, torpor in the mind, when trying to say phrases in a certain order, is sometimes very funny. And saying the phrases and saying the phrases and saying them with steadfast, deliberate intent. And all of a sudden, you hear yourself say something entirely outrageous. It's just because the mind doesn't have the energy to articulate the phrase with clarity. I find myself saying something to myself like, may I be full of danger. <laughs> a slip. It's like a tongue slip. We don't mean it. But it's just, it's close, you know. Uh, sometimes people say, I'm suddenly saying gobbledygook. I'm saying really strange things. Don't you notice that? That every once in a while you're saying outrageous things? It's just the mind is tired. There just isn't enough energy in it. And you can do a number of things, but the antidote to tired mind which is slipping, not seeing clearly, is to see clearly, is to aim more carefully at the phrases. So you could do that in a number of ways. First of all, you could open your eyes. So you wake up a little bit, 
and say, wait a minute, I'm just going to, I've been a little bit relaxed, I'm going to try to say these phrases clearly, maybe more slowly, maybe more deliberately, but slowly and deliberately and carefully. It's called aiming the mind in the direction of the object, and it wakes up the mind. I remember I did that once, practicing metta here in this building. I was so sleepy, just sitting in the hall and just saying outrageous things to myself. And it's as if I couldn't get the mind to say those phrases once clearly, certainly not twice in a sequence. So in the walking period, I went down to the bowling alley. And bowling alley is one of the things that I like to walk on downstairs. And I put myself on one end of the bowling alley and I said, I am walking on this bowling alley this entire walking period. I am never stopping one stop. I'm going to have a certain cadence of walk. I'm going to walk. I'm going to say those phrases with each step with absolute clarity for the whole 45 minutes. And I did. And then when I came and I sat down afterwards, I had such a huge amount of energy. This is almost all the other way in terms of work up energy in the mind. But it's a tremendous clarifier of the mind. You just make a dedication. I'm going to walk back and forth. My mind is not, the attention is not going to waver from that object once, this whole next 45 minutes. You can't do it sitting down, but you can do it walking because there's enough energy in the walking. You're not likely to fall over in the walking. I mean, you, you can make that dedication. It's easy. It's, I think you can do it in the walking. You try it. I think you can always do it in the walking. You have to make a decision to do it, but if you're alert enough to walk, you're alert enough to do that. The other side of the energy of torpor is the energy of restlessness, which is really too much energy in the mind, or just a lot of energy in the mind. It's not too much, it's just a lot. Um, sometimes if people feel it kinesthetically, uh, they feel like their body's on fire. You might feel sometimes that your body's on fire. You get just such high level of vibration in the body. Sometimes, it's, sometimes it feels wonderful. Sometimes it just feels like high vibration in the body. Sometimes it feels like agitation in the body and people think, I'm going to explode if I sit on the Zafu another minute. And if the bell doesn't ring, I'll explode. <laughs> I used to think that. I used to do all kinds of complicated visualizations so that the energy would drain out from my body. And it's, it's, it was really not so necessary. What you really can do, since the energy doesn't need to drain out from your body, that's, that's really a mechanistic view that's actually, it's actually in the mind, it's not, and it can change in one moment to the next, is all you need to do is steadfastly do the phrases. I'm beginning to see that there's a certain pattern to this. <laughs> But it's going to turn out to be really simple because the antidote for all the hindrance is to steadfastly say the phrases. So you don't even have to remember five antidotes. You can just remember. And it's true. Because if you steadfastly say the phrases, torpor disappears as the mind is able to aim. 
as you steadfastly say the phrases and the mind becomes more concentrated, one of the other factors of the concentrated mind is the factor of calm, which calms restless energy. I was going to tell you a story about restless energy. I guess I will, just because it happened last week, and my husband said, tell that story, because it's a good story to show that restless energy, restless, mind that tends to make stories out of restless energy will just do it. It doesn't get cured of it, but you don't have to get caught, caught in it. I live in the country in Northern California, and we were driving home from somewhere in the middle of the day, and we drove around a corner on a country lane about two miles from where I live. And there was a huge dog lying in the middle of the street, just in the middle of the street. I said, look, something happened to that dog. He died. Of course, all I know is this dog lying in the street. But not in the middle of the street. It was unusual. My husband stopped. He said, he didn't die. He's just lying in the sun. I said, no, look, he died. He's lying in the street. And that, at that point, the dog picked up its head says, okay, he didn't die, but look, he's been hit by a car. Why would he lie in the middle of the street? He's lying in the middle of the street, and look, see, his whole back, his hindquarters are all bloody now. Pull over to the side, and we have to get out and get the dog and put him in the car and take him to the veterinary hospital. And he said, where do you see blood on his back? I said, see blood all over his back. And see, there's, there's blood dripping on the street also. I see dots of it. At that point, the dog stands up <laughs> and walks slowly up. So as he sees walking slowly, that shows that he's been hit. He says, okay, he's just walking slowly. I said, no, see, on his back, it's got a... So he said, okay, he pulls into the driveway, and he was really not in a hurry to get out. It's a strange dog, and it was a large dog. I said, get out and check the dog. So, So he got out, and I said, look, the dog is wagging his tail. It's a sign that it's an okay dog. So he got out, and the dog came over. It was an okay dog. The truth of that dog was that he had obviously been uh, biting his hindquarters, as dogs do. They chew on themselves because they have fleas. And then he was, in fact, smeared all over his hindquarters with gentian violet, which he put, which his owners had clearly put on him for his chewing himself. So what was really the truth is that a dog with fleas, with gentian violet, was lying in the road in the sun. That was the truth. The story that I made up is the dog is dead, hit, wounded, that every possible calamity, taken, given the same set of stimuli, so he said, I want you to tell that story somewhere. <laughs> Just so that you say to people it, that becoming even aware of hindrances does not change the wiring. The wiring is there. The perceptual apparatus happens the same way. You work around it. I have a friend who's a Dharma teacher of some note whose principal hindrance is torpor. Um, I love to think about this because her reaction and mine to the same telephone call would be entirely different if she got a telephone call that said, 
Uh, ring, ring, hello, I'm calling from the south of France. Uh, I'm putting together a, uh, a, a retreat, a two-week retreat in the south of France in a villa, and we'd like you to fly to France and come and, tr and teach it. My guess is that her response internally would be, such a long flight to France. <laughs> Have to take the train after that, you have to pack, be in a strange community. It's hard to do it. I would be packing on the phone, probably. <laughs> and it doesn't mean I'm a better person or a more zealous Dharma teacher. It's just not true, because I know that that's not true. But this is the way the mind interprets material. And the truth is that either of us would go if it were time in our schedule when we could go. That, the bottom line is we both show up. But having seen through uh, whatever hindrance might have stood in the way, I might have constructed a worry about what would go wrong if I went so far for so long or something like that. But I have to see through that as well. The fifth of the hindrance energies is the energy of uh, doubt. And it's a little bit harder to feel because the other one, the other ones have a, um, a kinesthetic cognate in the body. You feel it when you're lusting, and you feel it when you're angry, and you feel it when you're exhausted or you torporous, and you feel it when you're filled with energy. And doubt is somehow a very sneaky energy because you don't feel it. It masquerades itself as thoughts, and it even masquerades itself as reasonable thoughts. Um, I shouldn't have come here. Everybody else is getting a lot out of this but me. It's not the right meditation for me. And they spend the whole day thinking about that. It wasn't the right time in my career, in my life, the right teachers, the right seasons, whatever. It wasn't the right thing. And then take that as a serious thing to think about for a while rather than say, you know, this is a doubt attack that I'm having. One of the antidotes I used to use for doubt is looking around at other people. I say to myself, I think that, but everybody else obviously thinks something else, so maybe they're right. And I would use really the presence of Sangha as a booster of faith. Actually, steadfastness of phrases is the antidote <laughs> to doubt. It is, because when we are steadfast, the mind develops an ability to stay with an experience from the beginning to the end. It's called sustaining the attention. The mind develops the ability to sustain itself over a period. Doubt energy is called slippery energy. And I like to think about it, it's like the mind slips out of gear, it doesn't sustain itself. And so when we are steadfast in the phrases, we're able to sustain ourselves in this endeavor and sustain the truth of what we really know in our hearts is true. This is the right thing to do. We all of us know that we really want to be happy, that we've had those moments in our life when we have been at ease and when we've really wished the same for other people and when our animosities have fallen away and when we've felt much better and much freer. So we all know really that that's the fabric of the heart. 
don't really need to be convinced of it. But we forget it, and then we doubt that we can feel it again. So just saying the phrases, not entertaining the doubts. Recognizing that a doubt is not a thought. It's a thought that's covering up a piece of slippery energy. I had a doubt attack once that turned into a multiple hindrance attack that turned into a big embarrassment for me. Happened right here. Uh, I was practicing for some weeks. I think with, uh, with I, I know, with a certain amount of pleasure and a certain degree of real gratitude and satisfaction with what was happening for me. And then I had a thought. Um, thought was, it was maybe three or four days from when I had planned to go home. And I had the thought, so many really wonderful things have happened to me while I'm here. I really understand so much more than I ever did. I doubt if anything else is going to happen in these three days. Okay? I thought that. Then I thought about going home. Sudden had a little bit of lust arise. I was feeling in a very good mood. I was really eager to tell my husband about all my wonderful experiences. I was eager to see him. So now the doubt slides into a little bit of lust, and I'm thinking about, I wonder if I could go home. I could go home a little bit early. Did all the work that I need to do. I walk in the hall. Maybe the windows hadn't been open for a while, and sometimes happens here. Been sitting for a while, you get really sensitive about smell. Walk in the hall, says, oh, it smells bad in here. I don't like it here at all. Matter of fact, I think I'll go home. <laughs> I wonder if it's uh, still before five, if I can call the airlines and see if I can change my ticket. So, before I know it, I'm down in the hidden telephone that no one's supposed to know where it is. And I'm feeling a little agitated at this point and restless because I don't want anybody to see me making this incriminating phone call or <laughs> anyway overhear me making this incriminating phone call. So I get on the phone with the airline and they say, uh, what's the number on your ticket? And I tell them, and they say, no, that's not a changeable ticket. They say, oh, wait a minute, it's really not a changeable ticket, but if you want to change it right now, my supervisor says you can change it. <laughs> so I thought, oh. I said, okay, change it. So they say, okay, so we're changing it, now we're sending you overnight mail ticket you can leave tomorrow. Okay, great. Hang up. And suddenly realized what I had done. I was completely mortified. Because on top of everything else, I had to go tell my teachers what I had done. That was the most mortifying of all. And then I had to go home. I had this new ticket. I had to tell my husband my mortifying experience. So I tell you that mortifying experience to prevent you from similarly humiliating yourself. <laughs> so I would like to suggest that this is the right practice. It's a magic practice. It's a perfect practice. It's the antidote to the pain of the heart. It enables us to reconnect with who we most truly are and to live in the happiness of really experiencing that. 
Don't have to do anything special. Everybody here can do it. It's not like playing the piano, that some people could take a lot of lessons and get good, and other people could take a lot of lessons and not get good. So you need to have a special talent. You don't need to have a special talent for being loving and kind and generous and any of the wonderful aspects of the resting heart. All you have to do is be alive. And this is the way to do it. And you don't even have to remember anything complicated. You don't have to remember all of the complicated instructions about this intention or that intention or on the breath. If you can remember four phrases and say them over and over and over and over and over again, when you sit and when you walk and when you eat and when you shower and when you do your yogi job and every moment when you are not fast asleep, you get up in the middle of the night to go to the toilet and say the phrases when you go and come back. Get up in the middle of the night and you roll over and say the phrases to yourself. It does it all by itself. Absolutely magic. The mind becomes concentrated. The factors of concentration arise in the mind. They are the natural antidote to the hindrances. The hindrances do not arise. And in the moments that they are not there, our natural, loving, compassionate heart manifests. It's a very happy way to live. So we'll just sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 4, 1996. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.